Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl for June 14th, a beautiful Thursday. And I'm here with a special guest, Dr. Joseph Joe Loitzo. He is uh, a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and Columbia-trained Buddhist scholar with over 40 years of experience studying the beneficial effects of contemplative practices on healing, learning, and development. He is Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Integrative Medicine at Wild Cornell Medical College, where he researches and teaches contemplative self-healing and optimal health. And he's also taught the philosophy of science and religion, the scientific study of contemplative states, and the Indo-Tibetan mind and health sciences at Columbia University, where he's an adjunct assistant professor at the Columbia Center for Buddhist Studies. And he also has two amazing books. Um, one is Contemplative Psychotherapy, which is more of a collection, which is the latest uh, one that you actually may want to start with a little bit, perhaps, because it's just a little bit easier to chunk down. And then this larger one, Sustainable Happiness, which really cuts to the core of why any of this is going on and why we care and why we're even doing this. Not only just this sort of um, ephemeral fleeting happiness that we're going after, but how to cultivate that inner wisdom, the wise girl or wise guy in you, and how to sustain it. How, how can we actually keep it going? So Joe, thanks so much for joining me today on Wise Girl. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Francesca, and I've enjoyed our conversation over the years, uh, and I'm happy to be part of your, your uh, reaching out to the world and sharing what you've learned. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, folks like you really bring something unique because you have the psychoanalytic perspective, you have the medical perspective, you have the actual practice, you're friends with the Dalai Lama, you do a lot of um, research, but clinical practice. So you see people living their real lives. And I would like to invite you to talk to me about how you see folks now beginning to integrate what otherwise seemed like different and disparate things, whether it's quantum physics, spirituality, and the philosophy of non-duality, mindfulness practices day to day, and then things like talk therapy or somatic psychotherapies. Yeah. Okay. Well, and be before I do that, I, I, my, my uh, graphics team and, and uh, my own team at Nalanda will, will uh, definitely get on my case if I don't uh, mentioned that I'm also the founder and director of Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science. Of course. <laughs> which is where we, where you and I have met in some of our classes on, on contemplative learning and transformation. Absolutely. Um, and that's, and I will also say that I, and I apologize for that. Of course, Joe is the, the founder of Nalanda, which has a wonderful four-year program um, and uh, also many other retreats and offerings here, working in partnership with Tibet House here in uh, New York City in many cases, and who just had an amazing benefit uh, last week where they honored Dr. Stephen Porges with Polyvagal Theory is someone that I also hope to introduce uh, to the Wise Girl audience in another few weeks or so, um, also on another episode. And so, of course, this Nalanda Institute harkens back to something that actually is an ancient institute, which you may want to mention to start yes. in terms of yes. that integration, because it really parallels what I had asked you initially anyway. Yes, great. Nicely, nicely done. So, uh, yes, I think that the integrating different practices, different disciplines that have been siloed off in our modern analytic learning and science tradition is essential for all of us as human beings. Like we're not split into 37 fragments, hopefully. Uh, we're just one person. And uh, if, we're, if, if the purpose of our uh, learning, science, research, methodology, technology, is to make us healthier, happier, wiser, more compassionate, more altruistic people, 
then all that learning needs to be funneled into our real processor, which is our mind-body system. And unfortunately, one of the things that's happened in the rediscovery of ancient science in the Renaissance was that knowledge was compartmentalized. And part of that had to do with the war between science and religion, where the human, the soft internal human sciences were sort of you know, owned by the church. And on the other hand, uh, the sciences, the new modern sciences of uh, physics and chemistry and so on and, and uh, bi biology and so forth were really set up on another platform that was uh, sort of very objectivist and divorced from the inner life experience and more focused on breaking things down uh, into pieces and looking at everything as objects. Um, and of course, that's done amazing things for our understanding and mastery of the, of the natural world but I'm not sure how much it's done for our understanding of ourselves and, and how all of that knowledge and technology relates to our internal quality of life or uh, capacity to, to make the most of our human life. So if you want to think about it as the humanist project, the other, so there's two basic paradigms of knowledge in the West. The one is the sort of analytic scientific mo module Francis Bacon described it as a bunch of little worker bees in their little in their little cells gathering little bits of knowledge and no one bee maybe except the queen I don't know would uh, be able to kind of pull it all together uh, but somehow it would all build toward a hive of something uh, and then the other model more comes out of the Renaissance the, the Leonardo da Vinci and so on and the the understand and Ficino and his academy in in, uh, in uh, Milan I believe it was uh, where it's all about humanism and, and the man or human being is the measure of knowledge and, and all knowledge, art, science and so on needs to feed the quality of human life. So those two projects have been split off in our culture. And so, you know, most of our, increasingly our modern culture reflects this, this uh, fragmenting, technical, objectivist strain uh, that's broken everything into bits we have so much knowledge, we don't know what to do with it. And then there's, there've been some hold-ons or holdouts of the kind of what has come to be thought of as perhaps more romantic or humanist uh, tradition. Uh, maybe it's somewhat re uh, relevant and somewhat involved in liberal arts, but that really is trying to help us figure out well, what does this all mean for me? Um, now, <clears throat> bring us to the present psychotherapy is one of the few elements of our culture that is specifically designed in a way to bridge those two knowledge uh, realms or experiential realms uh, and to help take the knowledge of the science before we develop psychotherapy as a kind of uh, uh, psychological or experiential window onto the neurosciences and to really kind of uh, helping people understand how the modern uh, you know, biological study of the of human evolution and the neuroscientific or, or physiochemical study of the brain and how it worked, how's that really relevant to my understanding of myself? That's one big picture way to think about Freud's project. Um, but from the other side, at the core of his methodology was working with one person working with one other person and helping that other person understand their own experience. So it was really a kind of, as a methodology, uh, psychotherapy is really a, a, you know, N equals two kind of a, a inside out or, in, a, you know, intersubjective 
a process of assimilating knowledge in a way that's relevant to my own personal self-understanding, self-mastery, well-being. So that's the, you know, in that sense, psycho psychotherapy is one of the few institutions in the modern scientific or medical realm that still holds out that project of integrating science in a way that's relevant for human life, for individual life. Now, enter Buddhism and, and yoga and the Indic sciences from the West, I mean, from the East. So the Indic sciences, um, I mean, there's a reason why, of course, we're, you know, here we are in New York City with a yoga studio on every corner and a meditation studio sprouting up on every corner. Um, and why everybody's practicing mindfulness and mindfulness is all the rage uh, is in part, we're, we're benefiting from something unique that happened in India that did not happen in the West, right? So of course in India, as in the ancient West, uh, it, you know, there, there was this sort of uh, uh, balance between the humanistic sciences, the human sciences and the physical or mathematical or, or uh, technical uh, arts and sciences. In India, that was true too, uh, but the Indians actually kind of went in the opposite direction from the West. Uh, Western uh, science really from way back was very interested in physics and very interested in understanding nature. Uh, and uh, Pythagoras and others uh, tried, to, tried to figure out what was the fundamental nature of things. Uh, and the, the sort of internal side of philosophy and spirituality uh, was there, but more kind of uh, eventually brought into religion rather than uh, dovetailing with science. The, in India, there was a commitment early on, um, way back in the Buddhist age, uh, around the time of Socrates, that actually the most important thing to understand was ourselves. And that, and not only was it important to understand ourselves, but that the civilization really should and began to commit its main uh, kind of knowledge drive and its main technical expertise to helping people not only understand, but live better within their own system, their own mind and body, and become more integrated people who were able to enjoy a civilized life, right? So while that project is kind of like... No, I'm just going to repeat that because you're just starting to freeze up, and so I just want to um, repeat what you just said, is that you're saying that um, folks wanted to be more uh, integrated with their nervous system and their mind and body but right now you're frozen on the screen. So. Still frozen and can't really hear you. Very in the Still frozen. Still frozen and can't really hear you. Um, as you were saying with the... Um, um. And you dropped out. Okay, so we're gonna have to either. There we are. You're back. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Okay, uh, so we're just gonna pick up where you left off, which is basically right. we're talking about the integration of people, uh, the nervous system. You were saying that the the most important thing um, was to understand ourselves, basically. Right. 
And, and the thing about ancient India made that their main project. Rather than understanding nature, India really, I think partly because it was the wealthiest and most geopolitically secure of the ancient civilizations, India really decided that learning to help people enjoy life and be integrated and creative was their most important project. Uh, whereas the West, because it was a poorer, more unstable and, and in way violent uh, world, focused on trying to control the outer environment and bring a sense of mastery to nature. Uh, so uh, India developed these, really made this commitment to give everybody the skills of contemplative self-awareness and self-mastery that were preserved for the elite in the West whether it's monastic or whatever elite and so that's why they develop that's why over time in, in the buddha's age uh yoga basic patanjali's basic system of yoga and his approach to mindfulness and self-awareness uh were codified really as things that everyone should know and needs to know and now on the university what you mentioned was a kind of move to mainstream that basic science and technology of, of self-awareness and integration, the human sciences, into all the other disciplines and to integrate it with medicine, politics, um, uh, technology, and so forth. And that's why, uh, you know, we feel that's what needs to happen now as we in the West are in this high, we've, we've done the natural world project and improved the, the basic external conditions of living for so much of humanity, given our focus on science and technology, uh, but we, we can't enjoy it. We're, we're, we're neurotic, we're, we're stressed, we're traumatized. There's con our main problems now are social, emotional, uh, destructive emotions and misperceptions and prejudice that really have nothing to do with the physical world. They have to do with the way our minds are educated, cultivated. And so we really have this huge need for the inner sciences, the human sciences that help our minds and, and nervous systems catch up with the world we've created uh, through science and technology. And I love, yeah, well, I was just going to say, I love that because I was, you know, sort of starting to think recently, it's like, it's actually sort of not optional at a certain point, right? Like when we become, it's like, I was thinking about what's, what's an analog for this? And I'm like, maybe like brushing your teeth, right? So you have toothpaste and you have a toothbrush, you're gifted with that. You don't have to use a root or something like they used to, <laughs> you know, like you actually have this. And so you opt in and you do that once or twice a day or three or four times a day if you're really obsessive about it. And then you make sure that you maintain your well-being for going forward. And in that way, this is sort of the internal de-placking or the internal um, decalcification, I think, that is so needed. But because, just like sound, it's not visible, right? Doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't, right. mean it doesn't affect us. Right, right. I, I really think that, and you, you started off with the issue or the, the question of, why are, we're, why are we trying to integrate so many different knowledge spheres and practice spheres uh, in, in the, you know, the, the healing disciplines and the spiritual disciplines in the West? And, and I think so I was trying to give the backstory for the fact that that's actually just necessary. All, any tradition that's tried to uh, work with human internal development, psychological healing, integration, has had to translate the, a, a clearer understanding of the external world, of the nature of life, the nature of evolution, 
into, into language that a human being can really experience and understand. And that requires the integration of multiple disciplines, even though and that runs counter to the modern scientific project of breaking everything down into bits so you can control and understand it better. Um, this is really more about putting it all back together again so that you can live in the world that you've created. You can live well with others, as Aristotle said. Um, and, and, and that's especially ramped up or amplified this, this integration because Freud believed it was necessary. He tried, he tried to make a claim for a multidisciplinary science of human mind and, and nature. Um, but it's still his voice and the, and, the, um, and the voice of psychotherapy is still very quiet and marginal and maybe even endangered in the West. Uh, so it's wonderful that East and West have come together in this global age because the traditions, the Eastern traditions, which much more preserve this understanding of, you know, the, the, you know, that the most important science and technology was the one that actually improved our internal ability to live in our own minds and nervous systems and to live with others in peace and understanding. Um, now they, those traditions have come into dialogue with Western traditions. So I think that they're really uh, beefing up uh, our ability to do the integration that's really necessary now because we have created this unprecedented degree of safety and comfort um, and we have these huge opportunities, but it's being squandered because mainly because of our, pers our, our you know, emotional, psychological and, and mind-body lack of integration and lack of development. You know, Joe, you've mentioned Freud a couple of times, and obviously, you know, the, the sort of uh, foundational father of talk therapy and uh, psychoanalysis, and then um, also um, you've mentioned the nervous system a couple of times, and the approaches of the uh, sort of conversational uh, resonance and witnessing and um, uh, more of the, one's experience could be in talk therapy in the Western world. Uh, is now opening up to more of these somatic nervous system oriented um, uh, approaches, which you uh, are obviously very much aware of for honoring uh, Dr. Stephen Porter's uh, of polyvagal theory, who talks about the social engagement system and safety and whether or not we feel safe and how we see cues, which is like I was saying earlier, why I like to do these on video as well, because I can see that you're connecting with me or not, maybe, and then we can tune and do our little attachment rupture and repair that we would talk about if you were looking at John Bowlby's work. So, and at Al. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, I'm going to approach this from a, a Buddhist standpoint rather than a Western standpoint. So in Buddhism, we slowly, you know, began with the techniques of mindfulness that are designed to cool the mind and kind of calm the nervous system and give people an ability to be at peace in their own minds and bodies in the present moment, right? But, you know, when you sort of then start to bring that to people living everyday life, with all the social emotional challenges of getting along with people, working together, difference, uh, in, integrating difference and so on, compassion becomes in, in, incredibly important. So the, the next wave of the, of the Buddhist uh, project uh, was really to try to integrate the basic science of mind with the understanding of the heart, the importance of compassion, cultivating the capacity for warmth and connection and then I say, I like to say that there's a third wave, which is related to what are called the tantras or esoteric practices that are really about bringing that into 
the dialogue with the human body and the nervous system. So I often say that, that contemplative science in India began in the ashram or the, or the vihara, the monastery, gradually moved into the household and the marketplace and the mainstream. That's what Malanda represents, the university, the universalization of science and, and, and contemplation in Indian culture. And then eventually it went from the, the household and the marketplace into the human body and the nervous system. And that's what the tantras or the, the most esoteric form of embodied contemplative practice in India is all about. So uh, what that really maps for us is already a very ancient traditional framework that integrates many different forms of contemplative practice that actually are represented by different traditions in our, on our planet now. The mindfulness tradition from Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand, the, the uh, compassion tradition from uh, East Asia, for example, from the Zen tradition, and then the uh, embodied practices or esoteric practices from Tibet, Nepal, Ladakh, and so on, Mongolia. So uh, these are all coming together in our age, but there is a traditional system, namely the Tibetan uh, preservation of the Nalanda tradition, which maps these all out as part of one human developmental spectrum. And the idea is that you can't just speak to the mind you can't just speak to the heart and you can't just speak to the body because we have all of those things. We have all those aspects, every one of us. So the, the most, the sort of ultimate technology, if you will, for human evolution, healing, integration is to bring the elements, uh, to bring the science of understanding the mind uh, and awareness to bring and, and to, to kind of then uh, uh, move or integrate that with, warming the heart, opening the heart, overcoming biases and reactivities, and finally to really tap into the, uh, to the deepest levels of the nervous system, which are, which are connected to our old, the oldest and subtlest parts of our brain, um, which you know, uh, Stephen Porges talks about vis-a-vis -vis the autonomic nervous system. So that's a very ancient model, and, and actually really, in, in modern psychotherapy, Freud developed talking therapy, but there were many other of his disciples and colleagues who developed techniques that were more heart-based and some of them more embodied-based, like Jung's use of imagery, for example, can really be seen as relating to uh, this whole you know, use of the uh, facial expressions and the, the need to give safety cues um, through facial expressions. And then of course, uh, Reich's work with energy in the body, disarming the, the character armor that he believed blocked our nervous system and our capacity to experience well-being. Uh, this understanding of the multi-layered nature of human development or the psyche or the nervous system was present in Freud's day, but the, the, the more sort of embodied approaches and even the more heart-based approaches were, were seen as controversial. Right? So science wasn't really ready to integrate these because the science didn't exist for us to understand the importance of emotion or to understand the importance of the, of the uh, mind-body system and the autonomic system. Uh, those, those things have only come up, you know, science has only caught up with the human sciences, right? Objective science, the science of the brain has only caught up with the human sciences in recent decades. And so with the whole advent of effective neuroscience and the importance of positive psychology, understanding emotions um, 
and relationships, which relates to the attachment theory and Bowlby and all of those folks, uh, new forms of therapy based on uh, understanding interpersonal connection or intersubjective connection. And now, more, most recently, science is finally beginning to plug in an understanding of how the older part of the brain, the, the reptilian brain or the core brain, uh, factors in, in terms of the basic regulation of, of safety versus stress, the basic regulation of awareness, uh, you know, whether it's a deep uh, open awareness or it's uh, a fragmented uh, uh, you know, analytical awareness. So, so this, uh, you know, the ancient traditions are really very interestingly all, all set, all ready to, to help integrate uh, with the new neuroscience that's developing in the last few decades uh, to give us methods for tapping into those older parts of the nervous system where most of our problems lie, actually. Really the, the most serious and intractable human problems, whether it's social, you know, intimate relationship challenges, or it's uh, trauma and and embodied stress challenges. Uh, the ancient traditions, you know, science has just discovered them, but the ancient traditions have been onto this for millennia and are very well prepared with tools right. to help us deliver on the the promise that science is really introducing. Well, now that we have fMRIs and Matthew Ricard and Richie Davison and all those folks doing this kind of research, um, we can create studies and people can see and, and recognize, um, you know, that, that there's actually brain changes in, in growth in the prefrontal cortex or in the thickening of the, uh, you know, areas and, and, and how the corpus callosum can integrate different parts of the brain and how we're all this, you know, and we talk about this trying brain, but really it's a complex network and systems, but basically you're growing parts that are helpful to making the homo sapien sapien part of us, the one who is aware that we're aware, aware of the fact that we also have programming and conditioning and reactivity that we can, as the buzzword was a couple years ago with Airbnb and, and Uber, disrupt our default mode network, right? Yeah, we, yeah. We, can, we can disrupt that. And so what you're saying is, is that all of this tech, all of this, um, these ancient wisdom traditions have already laid out the roadmap. There's already a template and now we can weave this in and what I like to do is call it applied mindfulness, meaning how do I apply it to my life and my relationships, but how does it then influence the way in which we show up in the world when it comes to things like racism or the planet or other things? Because I feel like there's a lot of folks who try to jump ahead into the compassion and then they burn out because they haven't figured out how to regulate their own individual nervous system and stay steady before they do that. So can you speak to a little bit about how this helps when you actually pay attention to your own internal experience and how that helps you show up in personal relationships and then in other larger ways down the line. Sure. Uh, well, I think that in terms of the, in terms of the brain, I like the triune brain model, even as you point out, it is uh, considered now archaic in a way because we understand uh, the complexity of neural networks but still there is an evolutionary hierarchy to how those networks evolve. Um, and I see the work to be done as, you know, if you start for most people starting at the, the newer part of the brain, the, the neocortex, including the prefrontal cortex, and each of these parts of, and then moving on to the emotional brain, which is in the limbic system, primarily or in those structures surrounding the limbic system, 
and then eventually really getting to the core brain, the reptilian brain, where we really are dealing with fundamental stress and fundamental quality of consciousness. But this is such a journey that we have to start where most of us find it easiest. Uh, well, some people find it easiest to go from the top down. Other people find it more easy to go from the bottom up. Uh, so that's maybe where the ancient traditions, again, have sort of anticipated what we're learning now. Um, and at each of these levels, I, I like Dan Siegel's language in this very much, that there are integrative net systems or networks that help us uh, uh, establish a sense of feeling safe uh, and connected and prepared to socially engage with others. That, that, that's particular Porca's idea, but uh, the, the idea of social engagement. But the, the idea is that the, our whole brain has multiple networks uh, that will either are either there to keep us vigilant and defensive or there to help us calm down and connect and be open and play or create with others. And so at each level, we're trying to shift the balance from the stress reactive systems to the more integrative systems. And the practices of things like mindfulness or compassion practice or embodied practice help that mission at, at, very, at deeper and deeper levels of the nervous system. So in the beginning, what we're really looking at is trying to, as you pointed out, the default net mode network, which is really about, in the, mostly in the neocortex, is really about kind of a, a slightly wary or negatively biased um, autopilot, which is really saying, I don't know what's happening right now, but I better keep, I better stay hypervigilant because something bad might happen. Yeah, the tiger <laughs> might jump out of the bush or something. And yes, um, and and mindfulness helps to uh, deregulate de that, helps to dis disrupt that, and as a result, make us more, have, give us greater access to the present awareness part of our neocortex that is the most sociable, the part that allows us to be most empathic, creative, to engage in cultural roles and, and activities, connecting with others on the largest scale. Um, the, at the next level, the issue really relates to uh, traumatic reactivity and the amygdala hijack. And that's what happens when under the radar, we feel we're not safe with others, and it triggers emotional childhood emotional responses that actually put us into a fight or flight mode, um, and that's really best dealt with using you know wise compassion training or compassionate mind training. Uh, and there's some practices like self compassion that have really helped us with this to help us really understand that at the bottom of all social stress is our own memory of being a helpless, powerless child. And if we can learn how to put our own oxygen mask on and soothe that inner child so that it feels safe and connected, then we can engage the, the, the more uh, progressive or pro-social part of our limbic brain, which is the heartfelt openness, warm connection, compassion. And we know now that simple practices like loving kindness, self-compassion, or more advanced Tibetan compassion training practices can help us really to build those muscles that positive psychology and effective neuroscience tell us are really the best tools for our life, uh, reconciling difficult relationships, whether it's in home or at work or, or whatever. Um, the final project where we deal with embodied practices relates to the, the kind of uh, the extreme uh, primitive uh, 
the, the most older part of our calming nervous system, the, the uh, uh, primitive vagal nervous system, which is really about a, free, a faint freeze system, and is really there when we feel very imminently threatened by something, and is expressed in experiences that people have in trauma, um, feeling they're going to disappear or they lose the sense of being present. Uh, it's involved in um, uh, uh, people feeling uh, threatened by, by medical illness sometimes uh, or in, in uh, experiences like shutdown, like the feeling like, I don't, I don't know what I'm feeling, uh, you know, I, I'm, or I'm frozen in my body. I can't feel Lapsed, my body. disassociated, zoned it's out. So, right. And so that really is dealt with, and, and Porges has given us a language to talk about this by using the new networks that our mammalian brain developed that are rooted in the brainstem, but actually are specifically set up to assess uh, the social environment around us, the sounds of people's voices, the expressions on people's faces, the way they're moving, and to recognize the friendly voices and faces and movement that, and, and to, and to uh, be able to have the self-regulation to calm the reptilian brain so it doesn't get freaked out and go to, from one extreme to the other, fight or flight or faint and freeze. And that down-regulation is what embodied practices are designed to do. And, and there's basically two kinds of embodied practices. There's top-down practices that's using imagery and, re and recitation, and there's bottom-up practices using breath work uh, less ex and, uh, intensive breath work and posture. And both of these work actually on different branches of the vagal nerve, then that's the, the calming part of our autonomic nervous system, to calm the stress reactivity in the brainstem, the, most, uh, the primal uh, part of our nervous system, and to enhance the sense of safety and openness to connection, both connecting with our internal environment, our visceral feelings, uh, our inner well-being system, and also connecting with our ability to really be deeply open, intimate, uh, deeply uh, caring toward others. So, you know, the, the, these ancient traditions have tools that help us uh, reverse the damage of stress and trauma at all levels of the nervous system and enhance our integrative capacity to be uh, calm enough, secure enough, and open and engaged enough to really be able to bring the tools of love, the, the power tools of love and care into our lives. Into our lives for ourselves and for others. And I'd like to just, you know, say, since you are a clinician, is that for a lot of people, I think that there's this underlying sense, and I think I mentioned this to you before when we were talking perhaps over at um, Jewel Heart or something like that, but it was that, you know, a lot of folks think that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. I'm a bad person. There's something wrong with me. <laughs> I, I, I do it wrong. And, and there's this sort of attachment, and I say attachment, meaning that there is a uh, correlation between the fact that they can't quite have figured out how to uh, act skillfully for sustainable happiness in their lives with somehow that they're bad, they're guilty, they're in a shame state. And that yeah. oftentimes with mindfulness and with this basic sort of um, even Dan Siegel would talk about it in terms of scientific and quantum, you know, stuff with the plane of possibility and mathematical terms, but that there's this, there's this other grounding of, well, you're not just your programming or your conditioning. So you think there's something wrong with you because there may be some unskillful actions that keep going on repeat, the repetition compulsion thing or whatever it is that maybe continue to make you unhappy, but yeah. that 
you yourself aren't the bad person or whatever. And so when you learn to sort of pull away through these practices and through this foundational understanding and separate out that which is sort of swirling around, I say sort of the rings of Saturn, and then you're keeping yourself grounded as the planet of Saturn, you can have that relationship with what you're doing or what's happened to you and not just be in the re-triggered trauma time limbic emotional reliving of the memory state all the time right. and the practices help shift that but that foundationally people don't have to think necessarily that like it's my fault or i'm that unusual well um, we don't have to but we do and the reason is because this is where uh you know evolutionary uh, our evolutionary conditioning our survival bias and our negativity bias they they tend to to uh, default preset our nervous system and our mind to, to lean into the negative. And, you know, uh, Rick Hansen talks about the, the, our brains are Velcro for suffering and uh, Teflon for happiness. And there is a five to 10 in some studies, a hundredfold uh, bias toward holding on to emphasizing uh, and, and weighing the negative. And as part of that, it's a, even this worst case sense of myself, I'm so small and vulnerable and powerless. I maybe, I maybe made mommy annoyed, so I'm maybe not a good person. So all of this guilty, uh, shame-based, fear-based uh, uh, experience that we have, our, our consciousness without awareness is, gravitates toward that and tends to over-identify and we get stuck to it. And this is what makes trauma or, or even sort of uh, interpersonal difficulty um, or lack of skill, as you described, that makes it feel so personal. Uh, and so part of the contemplative traditions, I believe, from, from way back, was to really uh, have the wisdom to know that in order to, to rebalance that and to help us let go of that worst-case sense of self and world, um, we really need to exercise the positivity part of our nervous system and of our consciousness to strengthen those muscles so that we can let go, we can be more Teflon to the negative and more uh, kind of Velcro to the happiness part. Um, and that's where um, I think a more positive understanding of psychology, psychotherapy, really not looking at the, the illness so much, but looking at the potential for healing, even in trauma and, and even in terms of social problems and cultural problems like you know racism or sexism or whatever, understanding that we basically, we human beings, have this amazing capacity that we are much bigger than our than our stress, our trauma, our prejudice, our childhood trauma, whatever reactivity. And but but the, but the rub is that unless we make that effort to yeah. let go of the stuff and build the strength it takes to lean into the positive, we will default to that. And that's where the stubbornness and that's that's where the importance of training the mind. You're freezing up just a little bit. And we can't hear you. And you're sort of freezing up a little bit. This sort of disciplines of, uh, you know, contemplative practice are so important. Okay. Oh. It's the having so many people. Okay. Nandi, can you be in the other room, sweetheart? Am I back? Um, I see you, but you're not quite synced. Okay. And now it looks like you might be, you're still a little slow. 
still a little frozen. Yeah, I'm not hearing you. Um, if you want to get back on, sure, go ahead and I can just talk for a second and feel free to, to bounce off and bounce back uh, and rejoin the call. Yeah. It might be helpful. Um, but um, in the meantime, okay. I'll just... Okay. You're I'll still frozen. Right. Yeah, you're still frozen. And you're still on the call, so I think maybe you can jump off and then jump back. So what I'm going to just say in the meantime is that I think a lot of people um, who do, in fact, feel as though there's something wrong with them or feel as though there's a problem um, when they do come back, uh, there you are. Um, yeah, so you, get, you got the, my point that we need to practice in order to strengthen our ability to, to let go of the back, Joe, I can't see you. You're too close. Sorry. Okay. Yep, perfect. Um, yeah, so people need to elect to engage in this. And one of the things that I think is really important about what you've mentioned before in terms of what Tibetan practices kind of emphasize, and I think any of the mindfulness uh, sort of lineages, uh, if you will, talk about the fact that when you have, and even in psychotherapy, you know when you have a therapist that you feel really loves and cares about you. We talked about positive neuroplasticity and Rick Hansen. He talks about your caring committee. Uh, Dr. Diane Poole-Heller talks about your transformation tribe. Somehow having someone, your benefactor, your therapist, your doctor, your mindfulness teacher, your Tibetan transmission person, whoever it is, be the person who is embodying some level of nervous system regulation, care, love, and compassion for you so that you can begin to feel as though that's something that you can have and grow within yourself for yourself and then eventually extend that out to others instead of yeah. just locked into the contraction. Yeah, it is important to have it modeled, and, but it's also important to have people educate you and train you to do it because you have to feel that it's possible. Usually that's by encountering another person, but you also have to know that it's possible you also have to know that you can do that, how to do it. And so that's something that psychotherapy isn't as good at. Uh, and even maybe traditional spiritual communities are not so good at uh, that really it takes both sides. It takes the world reaching out to you with safety and connection and you learning how to take that in and how to act on it. So I, I'm sorry, but I probably need to run now. Yep. No, no, I understand. I think we, we've covered a lot of territory. <laughs> Definitely. And, and um, you know, I'm uh, so grateful that you uh, were persistent and we, and we found the time. Um, and it's great what you're doing. Uh, I'm really a big believer in getting this stuff out in as many ways as possible. So, uh, well, and thank you. Thank for, you. Well, thank you, Joe, for not only your time, but all of the time that you spend on Nalanda and offering these um, teachings, because uh, I do want to let people know, and I will, um, post the link to the website uh, that they can join the mailing list. They can be updated that you not only offer courses here in New York, and I believe um, there's a parallel uh, on the West Coast, but that you also have uh, some offerings online that you're beginning to expand out. And there's also the um, efforts that I know uh, your partner in crime, Jerry's doing with the Radical Compassion Project that is working to upend uh, systemic racism as well. So there's a lot of different ways in which people can get involved and educated and anybody who wants any further information can certainly contact you uh, off of that website. So Joe, for all of your efforts, many thanks. I appreciate it. And same to you. I'm all so right. happy to hear your, 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 uh, your new project here is, is, uh, is going so well and, you're, and you're, you found a way to reach out uh, to more and more people and it's so, so important.
Thanks well, for joining us. Take care. Process. Take care. Bye now. Okay. Bye bye.